Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21, is where our passage starts today. It's so good to see all of you. And um, those of you joining us online, we welcome you as well. Acts has been telling us the story of the church, the birth of the church, the beginning of the church as it expanded from Jerusalem and from those days of Pentecost all the way to the ends of the world. And God was behind every step of it. The Holy Spirit's working. It's powerful. It's obvious. Acts chapter 19. Now, the past 50 years, you could almost say this for even longer chunks than that, but it's been especially evident to me as I've looked and spent time uh, just reading, and, and, and I, uh, it's, it's important to note that how much technology has disrupted things in the, in the general market. Has, isn't it amazing? I, I was speaking with Earl Hillier. He's here today. It's so good to see him. He worked for the um, LA Times years ago as a typesetter. Isn't that right? He did some typesetting with the LA Times, and the amount of work he would do to set type for a newspaper, uh, and that all got computerized with the computer age. Uh, Things have changed even since I was a kid. When I was a teenager, I loved books and music. I loved to go to the bookstore and browse and just look around and see what would catch uh, my eye, something interesting to read. Then I'd slip over to the music section and see what was new, see what was laid out, and maybe listen to a couple samples of music. And it hit me a few years ago that um, these things have completely changed. I mean, completely changed, so much so that people don't uh, go to bookstores hardly ever. In fact, you see a Barnes & Noble and you wonder, oh, wait, they're still around? I didn't even know they were still here. Uh, they must make it on their coffee shop. I think that's why they still have that thing. And, and it's, uh, you know, there's, there's no music stores hardly ever, and you just go to your phone or you listen to music, and things are just, uh, somebody said amen to that, okay? Uh, I, I, I think technology disrupts, and, it, and, it, and, it, and things disrupt. Uh, when things disrupt us, we tend to get a little bit nervous, and we tend to say, well, I liked things the way they were uh, before. I liked, I liked being able to do certain things, or there's a certain feeling of loss, maybe, a certain feeling of disappointment, displacement, things have changed. And I don't really like the way things have changed in a certain way. Some things are good to change, and some things are are not. People, in general, our tendency is to like to be at peace, and like to be at comfort, and like to be left alone. Just leave me alone. Have you ever had that feeling? Would you please stop changing? Stop changing things on me. Just this uh, yesterday, we went down to Greenville for uh, my wife's uh, uncle's funeral. And as we were going through 385, we took 385, and they changed that whole inter- They changed that whole exchange. I've never done that exchange since they changed it all. I haven't been down to Greenville that much, and and I, I took the and I ended up going the wrong way because it used to be if you went up this ramp, you'd go that way. Now you go up this ramp, you go that way. And I'm thinking, why do they change these things on me? They should have, you know, they somebody should have told me. They should have called me and warned me about this, but nobody did. And so it wasn't a big deal. We we found it everything. But like people are sometimes just frustrated with how things get changed underneath us. And we like when things are just nice and smooth, comfort, the path of least resistance. And, and even sometimes we are, in fact, um, more concerned with how something impacts us than whether something is really truth. And let me get where I'm going here. Uh, sometimes when, when people are dealing with us and and we're not sure we really want to change our lives if we can just keep sliding by. We don't like when God inserts himself into our life and says, you need to change how you're doing something, and you need to repent, or you need to change your mind, or you need to, you need to confess some sin. And we say, but I liked that sin. I, I really didn't mind that sin. That sin didn't feel like it was really bothering me too much. And you're telling me that I've got to change this. We don't necessarily like it when God impacts, uh, when, when our, our life gets 
crowded by God's word, when God's Holy Spirit starts pointing his finger at us, that can get uncomfortable. And we don't like that. Uh, You know, do we have uh, the courage, though, when God's truth is presented to deal with it? Uh, God's truth will not leave you alone. God's truth will confront you. It will correct you. And when change comes, are you willing to, uh, to believe God and to follow him and to obey him? Some people, when they face the correcting word of God, don't want to hear God's truth. They'd rather have their comfortable life and rather have their favorite sin. And this morning, as we look at this passage, I want you to see yourself, and I want you to evaluate your heart and see, is there things, are there things that God has been working on me? Are there things that I have allowed in my life that God would not be pleased with or is not pleased with? And if I'm honest with myself, I know that. And will I have the courage to confess that and to come before the God who created all things and who loves me and cares for me and confess that sin to him, the God who forgives us? Father, we ask you give us wisdom as we come before you. Now we ask for your presence. We ask through, through me, an imperfect vessel, uh, I pray that your truth would come and be clear. And I pray that as we look at your word, that it would touch our hearts. Uh, we would be obedient. Uh, and your word, we want to exalt it and, and obey it today. And I pray, God, that you would help us not to be distracted by our lives and by the things that are around us, but rather we'd focus on truth. We pray for comfort for those who are struggling and going through hard times. Lord, I think of those who have just been having difficulty in their lives. We ask you, Lord, to send the spirit of comfort to them that they may know your comfort and that they may comfort others with that same comfort. And Lord, I pray for those who are struggling in other areas, God, that your spirit would give them the strength, the grace to overcome those, those trials and those difficulties. They may weather these storms to glorify you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see as we begin our story today in verse 21, that opposition comes when you do not expect it. This seems to be a theme throughout the book of Acts, and it comes here again that opposition can surprise you. It can even blindside you. I don't know if you've ever played football before, but I have. And when you're playing football, sometimes you get blindsided. I remember running down the field, holding a ball, thinking to myself that I was good to go. And out of nowhere, somebody hit me. And I, with that helmet, you lose a lot of peripheral vision. And I got completely blindsided. Can I tell you, friend, that sometimes life is like that. When you're going through life and you have your plans and you think you've got things pretty much figured out, God sends something that you don't expect. And life and opposition can indeed blindside you. And isn't it the case that when we face obstacles and opposition and difficulty, the reason it's so hard sometimes is because it blindsides us, because there's an unexpectedness to most of the trials we face in this life. When we can prepare ourselves for the trials, we can anticipate something happen, we can brace ourselves, we can be ready for it, but the hard times happen when we're minding our own business, going about our days, and God decides to drop a bomb in our laps. Let's look at this verse in verse 21, because God may allow opposition when you have other plans. Look at verse 21. He says, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in, his, in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul is compelled in the Spirit to go through Philippi, to go through Macedonia and Achaia, and finally make his way back to Jerusalem. He has a plan. He also says, I want to see Rome. He wants to probably take off on a, a boat from Jerusalem and from, from the coast actually there in Israel and go, go up to Rome perhaps, or maybe go by land. We're not sure. But he has, at this point, he has a, a goal here. And most people, most pastors and scholars look at this passage in this language of purposing in the Spirit 
Spirit indicates this is some sort of divine push, that God has been teaching him and telling him, you need to go this way and go towards Rome. And so Paul is being obedient, and he has other plans. Paul has explicit other plans here. And I think a lot of times we should have plans. Nothing wrong with having plans. It's good to have plans. Uh, and while we have other plans, sometimes uh, God continues to work. But look at verse 22. You may uh, find that opposition comes when you're alone. Look at verse 22 and see what happens here. It says, so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Paul sends two men ahead of him, and these two men were known as ministers. They were workers for him. They were his helpers and his encouragers and his mentees, if you think of that. He was people he's mentoring, right? He was, he was working with these men, and they were such a huge help to him. And so what does he do? He sends them away. We find out later in this passage that Paul's not completely alone. He still has some travel companions with him, but two men who really mean a lot to him, Timothy and Erastus, who are ministering, doing the work of the ministering with him. They were, they were, de- they were deaconing with him. That word means to, to serve. They were his personal assistants. And it's in this context, Paul having sent away two of his closest allies and Paul here having plans to leave, that God brings this great disturbance to the city of Ephesus. Notice here that opposition comes from those threatened by God's truth. Opposition comes from those who are threatened by God's truth. Verse 23 says, and about that time. So he situated the time of this disturbance with Paul sending away Timothy and Erastus and making plans. He says, about this time, there arose a great commotion about the way. And the word way there is probably capitalized in your Bible, indicating he's talking about the Christian way, the Christian faith. Because when the truth comes into a culture, it completely disrupts the order of that culture because the order of culture, apart from the truth, is organized against God, not for God. And here, it, it upends this existing social fabric. It points the culture to a new way, a new truth, and a new life. Opposition comes from those who are threatened by this. Because, because rather than seeing the truth come into their life as illumination, as help, as good, as light, they see the truth coming into their life as a threat to their way of life. They're not interested in changing. They're not interested in bringing their life into alignment with the truth. They're interested in suppressing the truth so that their life does not have to change. They don't want to change. They're happy with where they are. They don't want truth. They want to suppress it. Notice here has God's truth disrupts wicked prophet. Look at verse 23. For a certain man, oh, we already read verse 23, verse 24. So a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, or this is the goddess Artemis, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Demetrius is the one we see who's threatened by God's truth because God's truth was disrupting his prophet. 
He here is a work, he's a silversmith. This is his work. Demetrius' work is a man who makes little shrines. Now, we don't actually have any existing silver shrines from this area because, because what happened in the ancient world is if you made something of silver and then after a while somebody found it, they didn't preserve it in a museum. No, no, no. They melted that thing down and they made it into something else. But we have a lot of terracotta or baked clay representations of Artemis today. And these, um, these clay figurines, which are probably very similar to the silver figurines that he would have made, were replica models of the great Diana of the Ephesians temple goddess who was there in Ephesus. And this was a, a feminine, hypersexualized goddess that was worshipped in Ephesus that predated both the Romans and the Greeks. This was a, a, a very uh, ancient kind of religious order that was established in the city of Ephesus. Archaeologists have found examples of these, as I just mentioned. And in fact, if you notice, what he says is that their, uh, their profit is what they're concerned about. He says their profit, they're making a good life by selling these figurines. This is basically easy money for them. They saw their prosperity by this business, this trade. They saw their religious work as a business because it provided a comfortable and easy life for them. This was Demetrius' work. And when God's truth comes into a culture, what's going to happen is people who make their living in contradiction to God's truth will have a problem with it. Now keep reading. You'll notice his companions, the people here. Demetrius' companions were filled with the same concerns as he was. Their prosperity came from deceiving people and making these silver shrines. He says he calls them, verse 25, calls them together with the workers of similar occupation. That is, this is a, 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 a thing they do together. They, they have this prosperity by making these shrines. And then what's his concern? Demetrius' concern is that Paul had persuaded and turned many people away from idol worship. Because Paul was teaching people that if they make something with their hands, that's not truly a god. Now, it's interesting to me that I wonder if Demetrius really truly believed that, that what he was making was a god, or if he just, I don't know exactly what his belief was, but we know, we know that he was offended by Paul's preaching of the truth, because Paul's preaching of the truth encroached on his ability to make a profit. They were making money, and if the world turned away from idolatry, then his occupation would be in jeopardy. We read a couple passages today already about idolatry. We read an opening at the beginning of the service about idolatry. And then as our scripture reading, we read from the Psalms about idolatry. I want to read you again what I read at the beginning of the service. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is no God we serve except the Lord our God. Amen. Amen. We serve the Lord. He is the King and the creator of all things. He created the heavens and the earth. He created you. And our Lord and our God is who we worship. And when he has revealed himself through his word, his truth brings a light in a dark place. And some people like darkness rather than light. They don't want to submit themselves to the truth of the word of God. God actually tells in verse 7, he says, let me show you how good of a God I am. Who can proclaim or who can predict like I can? Let him declare it and set in order. He says, I'm the king of history. I'm the king of the universe. And then he says in verse 8, therefore do not fear. If you worship the God who created all things, what are you afraid of? Don't be afraid, he says. Have I not told you and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Of course not. There is no other rock. I know not one. He says, and those who make an image, all of them are what? Useless. What is your image going to do for you? Nothing. 
He says, I created the world, an image. You have to create it. He says, I formed man's mouth, and you form a mouth on a, on a false idol. Can you see how foolish this is? Their precious things shall not profit. This is amazing when God continues to speak. He says, who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, the workmen. They are mere men. Remember, these people are just people. They're just men. Let them be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear there shall be ashamed together. God's truth disrupts wicked prophet, and that is the case even today. It's very hard for those who make a living opposing the truth to recognize the truth, even if it hits them in the face. And there are people today in our culture today, in our country today, who make a profit based on things that are contrary to God's truth, and they do not want the truth to reign because that would mean they will have less business. And we need to be willing to speak the truth, even if it means that some people will be upset with us because they were obsessed with money to the degree that it kept them from seeing the truth. Don't be obsessed with funds and money to the degree that it keeps you from seeing the truth. Secondly, we see God's truth disrupts cultural norms. His second concern revolved around their way of living, their cultural way of living. Hey, when Christ comes into a community, whether that community is a small community like a couple or a family unit, or whether it's a neighborhood or even a country, when Christ comes in, things will change. Look at verse 27. He says, So not only is this trade of ours, this line of work, in danger of falling into disrepute, shame, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. He was worried not only about losing his financial profit. He was worried about their culture being destroyed and their way of life being changed. He didn't like the idea of Diana worship being replaced by truth. Cultural norms, regular ways of doing things, our cultural life must be in submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We do not, we do not hold on to things that are contrary to God's worth. We probably do, but we should not. Hold on to things that are contrary to God's way of doing things. He was worried about the change of worship. Living in Ephesus would be an, living in Ephesus. There, the worship there would be upset. He says Diana might be despised. Her magnificence might be destroyed. People might look around and say, "Wow, you used to have a great statue here, but not so much. Nobody pays attention to her anymore." He is concerned about cultural norms. We do not adapt the gospel to cultural norms. The cultural norms need to adapt to the gospel message. You see what I'm saying? That the truth, when it comes in and it brings light, we need to submit our hearts to the truth. We don't need to twist the truth to fit to our culture. And a lot of people have fallen into that trap, haven't we? A lot of churches and a lot of Christians have tried to adapt the truth of the Word of God to our cultural whims, and it does not work because the light puts away darkness. The light does not adapt to darkness because God's truth disrupts, and God's truth disrupts liars and disrupts lies. When they heard this, Look at verse 28. They were full of wrath. They were full of anger, and they cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Notice their confusion and their anger. They are first confused and angry. They are full of wrath 
And twice it says they're confused, verse 29 and verse 32. They're confused about what's happening. They're full of anger. These people are not filled with the Spirit of God. They were not rational. They were not thinking of the truth. They were emotionally reacting and emotionally responding to the threat from the truth, the threat of the truth in their life. When the truth comes in, it disrupts them and they're angry and they're upset. And so they start chanting. They start a mob. They start a riot in the street, chanting slogans. Great is Diana of the Ephesians over and over and over again. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I mean, have you seen riots before? It's not exactly a rational group of people. They're not sitting there having these discussions. No, it's brute force and power. It's our number of people are going to chant the same slogan over and over again until we get what we want. And that's what they're doing here. They're confused. They're full of anger and they're coming at the people who love God. Look at verse 28. And they heard this. They were full of wrath. Greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Verse 29. The whole city was filled with confusion and they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. When Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples prevented him. They would not allow him. In verse 31, some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them did not know why they had come together. So much confusion, so much chaos. It was a powder keg. And Paul is sitting here saying, just let me go talk to him. And his friends are saying, no, 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 you're not going down in the midst of that group. If you go down there, you're probably going to die. We're not going to let you into that chaos, into that mob. We're going to hold you back. You can't go down in there right now. But I want you to notice Paul's confidence and his peace that he was willing to watch, walk into a mob of people who were chanting, great is, the, is Diana of the Ephesians. He was willing to go into that mob and speak truth to them, but it was only his friends who held him back. Most of us, when a mob is forming, we're running the other way, right? We're like, oh, I'm not going to be around for this because even if you are packing heat, you're not going to be able to hold them off too long. Like you just, you can't, if it's a group of people, you will be, it, they will overwhelm you. And Paul here, he is saying, I will willingly go and talk to them, but they hold him back. What a tremendous description of peace. And while he's at peace inside, the mob is just completely in chaos, complete chaos, complete destruction, preaching and singing or or chanting. And you know, this is completely opposite of how God wants us to do our business when Christians should not be like this. Christians should not be chanting in mobs and trying to overwhelm things with the power because God, as the Bible says, is not the author of confusion, but as, as he's the author of peace. And our God does not deal this way. This is, this is the, 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 the profile of confusion and the profile of chaos. It's the opposite of how God wants us as Christians to be living. Then they won't accept words from anyone unless they agree with them. Look at verse 33. There's a little story inserted here about Alexander, this Jewish Greek who's going to speak to the mob. He says in verse 33, they drew Alexander out to the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. And it's almost like the crowd says, okay, there's somebody here to speak. And he he calms them down. Then somebody says, he's a Jew. He found out he was a Jew with one voice. They all cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They won't listen to him, notice, because of who he is. They're not interested in what he has to say. They discount him based on his ethnicity. They say, you don't count because you're a Jew. I'm not going to listen to truth coming out of your mouth. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. They shot him down. This is a profile of a mob. It's a profile 
of chaos. And friends, the church should expect opposition from those who are threatened by the truth of God because God's word disrupts wicked profit. God's word disrupts this, and a lot of wicked people are doing things in the world right now, a lot of them associated with destroying and defacing the human body. We are made in the image of God, and Satan's target has been placed on defacing the human being, defacing the human body. And today there are people making lots of money in abortion and in all kinds of transgender surgeries. There's all kinds of things going on today that are just destroying the human body, and it is people are making money on these kinds of things. And you can expect the anger to come when the truth is presented. You can expect it. You should know it's going to come. And, and we, are, we are in a blessed peace right now. We don't have anybody beating down our doors, and I'm thankful for that. But you should not be surprised when one day there, is, there, is, there are mobs forming. There have been, I have heard recordings, and I have, of there have been mobs outside of churches in places like San Francisco beating on doors because of preaching of the truth of the Word of God. It has happened in the United States of America. And, you know, we are not far from these kinds of things because mobs form when people are angry at the truth, when people do not want to hear the truth because God's truth disrupts cultures. It disrupts liars and lies. And God's word is truth. It levels the ground between the rich and the powerful and the poor and the powerless because the truth doesn't care who you are. It's the truth. And so as we keep going, we see opposition is always restrained, though, by the hand of God. And an amazing little end of the story in fact, all of the excitement and the chaos, it's like a balloon just kind of slowly leaks air here for a second. Because what happens is all the rioting, God uses a city clerk, a civil servant, a simple human authority, an obviously pagan man himself, to restrain the mob that God had formed, that had formed against God. And God did all this to protect his servants. And God's hand is at work even in this man here, this clerk. Look at me in verse, 9, uh, verse 35, chapter 19. When the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know this city of the Ephesians as temple guardian to the great goddess Diana? And of the image which fell down from Zeus, therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet. Do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers, robbers of temples, nor blasphemers of your goddess. In verse 35, he says, everybody knows Ephesus is where Diana is. Guys, you're overreacting. Everyone knows this is the temple of the Ephesians. Everyone knows about the image that fell from Zeus, which was likely a meteorite, some sort of rock that fell out of the sky and it became the center of worship. In fact, there's uh, some, some people who believe they found this rock and it was, it was um, uh, kept in a museum in Leeds, England. They believe that's the rock they were talking about. It's a meteorite with some special uh, features on it and they think that's probably what this was referring to that was built on top of, but we're not... 100% certain, but whatever the case, that's what he's referring to. He says, don't, he says, don't act crazy. Use your common sense. And it's important for us to note in verse 37, and this is a challenge to all of you as we sat here and talked about the opposition we face. Notice that in their ministry, Paul and his companions had done nothing that would have been against the law to stop the worship of Diana. They simply preached the gospel. Okay, they didn't, they didn't bomb the Ephesus temple. They didn't set out traps for people going to, they, they, they simply preached the truth. And the truth is powerful enough to confront the lies. And the light is powerful enough to dispel the darkness. And God works 
through the simple gospel message to bring light in a dark place. They didn't rob the temple. They didn't break down the temple. They didn't break inside and deface it. They didn't spray paint all over the place. I know they didn't have spray paint. Okay, I get it. I know. But they didn't do these things. They didn't rob the temple. And that actually works in their benefit because the clerk says, what do you want me to do? All these guys have been doing is preaching a message. Like, do you, that's not illegal. They didn't rob you. They didn't defile you. They preached the gospel message. And if these men, he says, have broken the law, then take them to court. Verse 38. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. I mean, but if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. This guy is, is filled with wisdom. What a courageous man. He says, look, you're, you're being ridiculous. He says, if you have a problem with him, bring him to the court. He says, be ordered in how you handle this. Christians, if you've done something criminal, take them to court. Deal with them there. But even this pagan civic leader recognized what was happening was disordered. In the whole process, we see the divine restraining hand of God, restraining and holding back this mob from destroying God's servants. Then verse 40, he makes an argument that there is no reason for them to be there in disordered gathering. He says, we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Perhaps he was worried about Roman authorities stepping in and claiming uh, rule over this disordered place. The mob had been disordered. It had been opposed to truth. It was not helping. But here's the amazing thing. Even when the opposition to the Lord and his truth seems unreasonable and seems insurmountable, the same God who can calm the winds and the waves can calm the crowds. We should be confident in God's restraining hand. And he often he does this through unlikely channels. To people who we look at and say, God, you're using him? You're using her? What? That surprised me. I can think of a dozen examples of that in our culture today. You think, wow, I never thought God would do that. But he did. God uses unlikely people to restrain evil. Let me just give a couple applications here as we close. First, that God's truth applies in every culture, even cultures that do not acknowledge him. We might be tempted to dismiss uh, and, and excuse cultural differences that, and not speak God's truth to them because our culture today is multiculturalism. That is, our, that is the state religion, by the way, right? Multiculturalism is the belief that it's the philosophy that all cultures are equal morally. But God's truth confronts human tradition and human culture with an outside external evaluation. God looks at every culture and every man, and he declares his authority over them because God's word, God's truth, corrects and confronts every culture of man. God's truth deals with us. And here's how you know you've fallen into this trap. If you say, well, I think it's just a cultural thing. If you're taking a sinful issue and you're just saying, well, that's just a cultural thing, you might not be uh, addressing the truth. You might be excusing sin because the truth imposes on us. The truth makes demands of us, and it changes how we see things. The truth will not leave you alone. God's truth makes universal demands of all people. That's why it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel message is available to all people doesn't matter what culture you're in, doesn't matter what skin color you have, doesn't matter who your parents were, it doesn't matter because God loves you and he gave his son to die for you so you might have redemption and forgiveness through his blood, that you might have peace with God. 
God loves you and God cares about you. And have you allowed God's truth to confront and correct your cultural life? You don't even know the culture you're in unless you, you, you examine it according to God's word. It's an amazing thing to travel and see other cultures, isn't it? You begin to recognize the things that make your own culture a little bit weird. When my wife and I were in the Philippines, there's an amazing thing there. As far as time is concerned, things are always ish time. It's like, it's like we, started, we started the service. They said the service starts at like 10. And so, of course, you know, I'm there at 945, right? I'm in my seat. I'm ready to go. I'm a very punctual, punctual, I try to be a punctual person. And so I'm there. I'm ready to go. And, and you know, there's like a bunch of people who are not ready to go. In fact, no one was ready to go. The, uh, they were all busy fellowshipping outside of the, of the church, and the church was open air. See, they didn't have walls like we have here. They had, they had posts, so the breeze would, would flow through, and sometimes you have a chicken walking across the floor or whatever it was. And, and we, had, we had fellowship. We had brothers and sisters talking and encouraging each other on the outside, and in their cultural priority, they were loving each other, and that was the way they showed love to each other, and I was a little rebuked by that. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm so consumed with my watch, making sure I'm on time, that I forget that there's a person who who needs the love of Christ, so I can encourage right there. Isn't that something that we miss sometimes, right? So I'm not saying we're going to start, starting, we're going to start late. I'm not saying that. We're still starting on time. I'm going to hold the line on that, okay? I don't care if the choir is still practicing. We're going to start at 11 o'clock. That's, I'm not giving in on that. But I will say that there is, there is a balance that needs to be in our hearts that we cannot sacrifice people for the clock. We cannot do that. We need to be loving people, right? You see what I'm saying? So cultures, when you're all of a sudden and you confront another culture, you're like, you know, my culture is kind of strange. We got some weird things we do. And, and those things can be good or those things can be bad. There are some bad things about our culture we need to confront. You know, we're very materialistic people. You know that, right? We care a lot about our stuff. We care a lot about having the newest, best, greatest, and telling everybody about it. You know, we're very prideful people. You know why I can tell? We go and we tell everybody our business all the time online. I'm sorry. But we do, don't we? We think everybody wants to know about that meal we had and how good it was. We think everybody needs to know about my new thing that I bought. We think everybody has to know my most recent update. And we do this, and it's a very... Let's just be honest. Let's confront our culture for a second. We're very self-centered people. And we need, to be, we need to be honest. If we're going to change, if we're going to let God work in our hearts, we've got to take a good hard look at ourselves. We cannot say, well, that's just cultural. That's just where we are today. That's just the modern world. Wait a second. Why do we allow so much filth in our homes? We do that because it's cultural. Like, right? It's just everybody does it. Like, what's the big deal? Why, why, do, we, why do we do these things? Why do we treat each other like we do? I could keep going. We're going to stop. But God's truth confronts us and corrects us. So often we are wondering what everybody else thinks and not what God thinks. So my application at the end is you should expect God's truth to make demands on your life. And Jesus says this, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires, desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever desires or whoever loses his life for my sake We'll save it. The change that happened in Ephesus can happen here. I would love it to be that Rock Hill is such a place that's so unfriendly to ungodly things that places that make their money by ill repute go out of business because there's no customers. 
Wouldn't it be great if there was a group of nightclub owners and bar owners that got together and said, we just can't make a living in Rock Hill because there's too many Christians who won't, who won't go to drink and who won't party and who won't buy our stuff. I guess we're going to have to go somewhere else. That is the kind of change that is inside out that God demands of us, and we need to be moving forward in Christ-likeness. And how that happens is a bunch of individual decisions by individual people who take up their cross and follow Jesus. This is not an easy path forward. It's little by little, inch by inch, heart by heart, person by person. It starts from the ground. It starts by you making decisions. That's where it starts. It doesn't start by a big movement. It starts by little people making little decisions day by day, and they follow Christ, and then God works. And it was working so much in Ephesus that the idol worshipers noticed. One day they come in, they say, business is drying up. Why is that? Well, there must be all these Christians who don't buy our stuff anymore. I wonder what would it take for our culture to change? I know how what it would take. It takes people to change because culture is just people. Culture is just people making decisions. We need to make it unprofitable for ungodly industries. We have to change ourselves so that ungodliness is no longer profitable anymore. To our shame, to our shame, so many Christians not only promote, but engage in behaviors that support ungodly industries. I'm not saying go and establish a protest outside of a restaurant or anything like that. I'm just saying, would you make a decision in your personal life that as for me and my house, we'll take up our cross and we'll follow the Lord. Little by little, God will do great things. And then you have to face a mob. So once you decided to do the good things, then all of a sudden you've got to face a mob. You never know what God's going to bring your way. But in the, all the path of it, I encourage you today, would you just commit to being a disciple of Jesus? I think that's where this all starts. Take up your cross and follow me. Father, we ask today you work in our hearts as we looked at this example of this mob going on in Ephesus. We are reminded how fragile life is and how dangerous things can be, but we also know your truth speaks to whatever culture it's presented in. We know that you uh, exert authority and dominion over all people. And we need to take a hard look at ourselves and see where we have excused sin, have become prideful, materialistic, and immoral. And Father, I pray that you would use this word today to give us a a wake-up call, that your word exerts authority and makes demands of us and every culture. And today, Lord, we confess that we are weak, that we are sinners. And Lord, please forgive us of our sin and help us, Lord, to draw close to you as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.